welcome to yet another entry in the whole uh, weird <laughs> episodes to talk about. Because as much as I really enjoy half of this episode, I don't have much to say about it. It's just, it's just good. You know, it's, it's the problem I kept running into over on Babylon 5. You know, it's like, hey, here's this great episode. Yep. <laughs> so, for those of you not aware, not a visitor was getting pregnant with uh, Alexander Siddick's child. And they had to deal with that. Now, television has actually had a bunch of ways of dealing with women being pregnant over the years. Star Trek, in particular, usually takes either the have them leave the show for a bit option, or, and this is common, uh, this happened with Dr. Crusher, uh, that is to say, Gates McFadden, and with um, Roseanne da- Ro- Roxanne Dawson, excuse me, or is it Roseanne Dawson? I can't remember how to say her name. Crusher and Torres, God, I'm an idiot. Both of them, uh, they just kind of tried to use a combination of tricks, outfits, and camera angles in order to try and hide the fact that they were prego. But in this case, they decided, you know what, let's be science fiction-y about it. Let's say that the baby that Keiko and O'Brien are having, which is already a plot point, which is something they've already established, will make sure that that baby ends up in Kira instead. Sure. <laughs> Just whatever. It is creative. I'll give them credit for that. It means they can show not a visitor pregnant. It means they don't have to make uh, Rosalind Chow, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, look pregnant. You know, it, it, it kind of smooths over most everything. That's all I have to say about that, really. So I'm just going to go ahead and move on. Although I do want to give Keiko some credit in this episode because she does a good job of portraying someone who is obviously thankful and grateful and, you know, positive. And yet just sort of, and I, I use this term very specifically, deflated. No, I'm not making a pun with that. I mean as if she has literally lost a part of herself. And, okay, yes, I know she's literally lost a part of myself, but I don't mean in the physical sense. I mean, she portrays it in the metaphorical sense, in the mental sense, in the emotional sense, in the intangible sense. And she does a very good job of portraying that in that episode. And that's all I have to say about that side of the episode. Back to the A-plot. So, Cork comes in, you know, I'm, I'm dying. Now, the first thing I noticed was that everyone in the bar took notice and stopped and were like, huh. I only point that out because... <sighs> Let me go and admit something. Something that has bothered me several times is how much the crew tends to misuse or abuse Quark. This has been a recurring theme and is usually done for, let's call it what it is, cheap comedy. I don't care for that. Especially given how many times already here, as of the end of season four, Quark has gone to bat for them and been, you know, proven to be a better person than, let's call it what it is, a typical Ferengi. In fact, as I, as I believe I pointed out many times, one of Armin Shimmerman's goals going into this role was to try and redeem the Ferengi as a race. And by God, he succeeded. Not just because they're more human. Oh, that's, that's Rom and Nog. No, Quark is still a Ferengi. He's just not a scumbag, you know? He actually comes across as someone who fervently believes in the Ferengi ideals, and yet at the same time, doesn't. It's a really great parallel, and, and there's nuance to it. It's what I'm trying to say. There's layers and depths to it, and I like... Oh, my God, I like that. Cork talks about, you know, what, what do I have? I'm worthless. I'm a nobody. I'm a joke. Funny thing. I don't agree with that. Rom doesn't either. And granted, I have knowledge of the future, which includes Star Trek Online. That's all I'm going to say about that one right there. But all I'm going to say is that I don't think Cork really is a joke, even as of now. 
he is in a tremendously powerful position, politically speaking. The amount of information he has access to, the amount of connections he has access to, he is on the front line of Deep Space Nine, some place that has, by circumstance, become tremendously important to a large group of people. The Maquis, the Cardassians, the Bajorans, the Federation, and the Dominion. And probably the Klingons, too, if you want to add that. Think about that for a second. Quark is in a uniquely powerful position, and what's funny is this isn't just headcanon. If you pay attention to quite a few episodes, he knows that, and he leverages it. He also himself laments the fact that he wanted to be a people person, and he liked talking to people. And yet even as he makes fun of himself for it, it's still true. He likes being a people person. This is one of the things why I find it interesting when Rom tries to console him, he talks about how he's got friends. He's got a community. And Quark, in his anger, and it's so obvious that it's just an outburst of anger, says, you know, Ah, I only care about my peers, Ferengi! Because Ferengi! Because I am a Ferengi! There's an interesting identity thing going on here. Because one of the things, and I've talked about this many times before, is that Star Trek tends to have this thing about being with your people, or being like your people. It's a very recurring trend. What I like about Quark is that he thinks he thinks that, but he doesn't. Quark just likes people. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't believe in Ferengi tradition or Ferengi concepts. Obviously he does, but I would well, I'm going I'm to walk that statement back because I don't actually think he does what I would call believe in it. I've actually talked about the concept of core faith and core believing before and how that's something absolutely centric to who and what you are. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's coming out later, but I talked about this when I was recording the rumination on the movie Serenity. That's a very important theme in that film. And so... You know, that kind of something is so integral and so central to who and what you are. I don't think Quark believes, in that core sense, in Ferengi ideals and Ferengi concepts. I certainly think he thinks that way. I certainly thinks he adheres to it. But I think that's mostly because... Well, partially because of his upbringing, obviously, but because of his mother. See, Quark, for all that he is, is... Okay, let me rewind a second. I've talked before about the idea that there's smart Ferengi and stupid Ferengi, right? And that the smart ones keep the system going. Now, that's headcanon, but I, I believe that with 100% certainty because there's so much evidence in favor of the concept, because there's so many stupid Ferengi, and then every now and again we see a smart Ferengi keeping the system going, Zek being the most obvious example here. I think Quark would qualify as a smart Ferengi. It's just that rather than going into the hard businesses like weapons, he even mentions this uh, as an aside sometimes, or you know something else that'll sell tons and tons of money, he instead gets into people, communications, societies, uh, bartending, trading, uh, facilitating. You know, he's an expediter, and he's dead good at it too. And I feel like that's ju basically just kind of the different blends of his life sort of meshing together. You know what I mean? So he's still Ferengi. He just doesn't core believe in Ferengi ideals. In fact, I'm not sure he core believes in anything. Although, I'll get to that point later because that's going to come up. So, <laughs> he so he mentions, you know, he's got debts to pay off. What I, find, what I find interesting is that it's one of the first things he talks about is how much debt he's got to pay off. And the first thing is like, oh my God, well, some of that debt's to, you know, humans and Klingons and all this. He says, yeah, but the other half is to Ferengi. That's a lot of debt. And for, and what I love about that is Quark seems to think that his debt to this fellow Ferengi is something he has to deal with. Now that could be just because he's Quark. Because he does have a sense of... Uh, I don't want to call it nobility because that's really the wrong word. I suppose... 
a sense of, let's call it reliability, which I, it's still not quite the right word, but in other words, he does want to fulfill on his debts. At the same time, I find myself wondering if that's a normal aspect of Ferengi society. After all, we know that this desiccation thing is a relatively normal thing to happen. You know, the Ferengi, this has been introduced before now is what I'm trying to say. Maybe one of the reasons they, they started doing this desiccation thing is not just to rip money out of people, or of course to make fraudulent desiccation discs like happened with Quark earlier, but rather, maybe at least part of it is to help fund the paying off of debts. Now you might think, why would they care? And indeed, I guarantee you there are at least some Ferengi, probably stupid Ferengi, who don't care about their debts. But the problem is, debt is a concept, and that concept, like it or not, kind of makes economies work. Let me put it to you in simplistic terms. How many of you have money in a bank? Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, yeah, I've got such and such money in the bank. Well, actually, no, you don't. Uh, what it is, is the bank is in debt to you for X amount. Now, I know you say, oh, Laura, you're just splitting hairs. But no, that, that's actually the fundamental principle of how most modern banks work. Older banks function on a different principle. But modern banks, that's how they function. The debt is, be, is transferred or paid off or dividended, you know, basically at will. And thus, you have a faith, a certainty in the fact that the money that you put in that bank, in other words, the debt that the bank owes you, is something that they will pay off. I mean, how often, I mean, now granted, Pete, there are circumstances where people lose faith in the banks and banks fall down. I mean, there's a lot of extra complexity here I'm kind of skipping over. But my point being, the nature of that debt being an assurity... In other words, something that you can say with confidence, I'm going to withdraw X money or use X money from this and it's going to happen as a way of paying off the bank's debt to you is a concept that you can rely on to, to some extent or another. And if you couldn't rely on that, the very concept of banks and the debt that keeps it functioning would completely self-destruct. Make sense? This has actually happened, in fact, when that certainty wasn't there. Uh, especially given the many, many, many times when banks were trying to be invented as a concept and then would fail specifically because of this. There's a reason it took so long for banks to actually finally get functioning. And in fact, it could be argued that that only happened within the last century. So you get my point, right? You could see how that concept of debt is an integral part of an economic society. Therefore, the internal economy, the Ferengi Alliance economy, might require these debts to be paid. Otherwise, well, debt can just be erased, which is, of course, another problem that we do have in real life, but let's not get into that. I've talked about that too many times. So if the debt is just erased, then goods or services have been transferred for nothing, which can bleed out the economy and cause long-term issues, especially if this just keeps going on on a large scale. Hence, the idea that maybe Ferengi actually see debt, amongst other Ferengi, basically as sacrosanct, or, to put it another way, as reliable. Thus, and thus, the idea that the Ferengi will either pay off their debts by whatever means they have available to them, or, you know, desiccate their remains and sell off the, the pieces of themselves in order to pay for it, like Cork tries in this very episode. Now, we also have, I, I didn't write down the numbers, but we have what I believe is the first time they discussed numbering when it comes to bars, strips, and slips of latinum. So that's cool. It's, it, I, I believe this is the first time we have something concrete with regards to how their uh, numbering system works for latinum. Brunt shows up. <laughs> Actually, yeah, before I get to Brunt, uh, Rom has a great line. Korok uh, says, oh, of course, the Nagus. Nagus always liked me, and Rom responds in a very normal tone. Oh, he used you when it suited his needs. I don't think that means he liked you. 
I like that because Rob is not an idiot. He comes across as bumbling, but he is very smart. And in fact, I would say the specific type of intellect he has is being observant and being able to make something out of nothing. We see the latter in his engineering prowess, and we'll see that in the future as well. But the former is his ability to be like, well, that's not how this is. He's surprisingly perceptive for someone who is portrayed as a moron. And, of course, Max Grodenchik plays it wonderfully well. And I completely agree with him on here. The Negus has no love for Quark, no care for him whatsoever. He is a useful tool when he is, and otherwise he's not. In fact, I'm pretty sure the Negus only cares about one person, and that hasn't happened yet. Anywho. Uh-oh. <laughs> Please forgive me. Ah, just sneeze out of nowhere there. So for uh, Quark encounters Brunt. And Brunt comes in and Brunt is at his bruntiest. Can I just say really quick that I love Jeffrey Combs' Brunt? I always have. But uh, according to Combs, he actually really enjoyed playing in this scene too. There's this bit, and there's a lot of little subtle details. Combs is really good at the little stuff. I talked about that into the death as well. And so there's these little touches about how he just kind of, his face distorts a little bit when he's looking at Quark, and he physically recoils from him several times. You can tell. It's funny, because then Brunt lays out his motivations overtly, which I don't think was necessary, but you can tell how much revulsion he really does hold for Quark. That he looks at Quark, and he sees something that is wrong, fundamentally, with the system, with the people, you get the idea that there are, this is pure implication, pure speculation, but you get the idea that there are other Ferengi like Quark. And not, as, not in specific, but what I mean by that is less greedy stupid, let's just call it what that is. And the idea that Brunt sees Ferengi like that and he just finds them horrifying, just blah, blah. It's like, it's like someone walking around with spaghetti coming out of their neck instead of a head. It's just so gross. Ugh, how can you tolerate those people, right? Okay, that's a bad analogy, but I don't want to go into real-life analogies because there's way too many of those. You get the point. Brunt is a believer, an actual core-centric believer in the way that I mentioned earlier that Quark is not. And so Brunt, in his, for lack of a better way to put it, zealotry, legitimately dis dis is disgusted by the idea of another Ferengi who is staining the good name of Ferengi. Which is funny, because you'd think he'd be more upset about certain other Ferengi, but whatever. Regardless. So he goes after Quark. You know, it just actually occurred to me literally just now, the reason he goes after Quark is because of his family. Now think about this for a second. He's probably more disgusted by Moogie or by Rom than he is by Quark in particular. And yet... In core-centric Frankie society, you go after the head, male head of the, of the family as they're the ones who are considered legally responsible for everything underneath them and as far as the family, right? So in other words, even if Cork was the ideal Ferengi, which he of course is not, Brunt would still probably go after him because by the ideals of a core-centric Ferengi, Cork is now responsible for Rom and Brunt and Nog. Anywho... <clears throat> So that's just fuel to the fire, really, in addition to the fact that, that Quark was willing to sell medicine to Bajoran refugees at cost. Oh, sorry, sorry, slightly above at cost. So then Quark goes to uh, Gar Garak and is like, hey, I want you to kill me. Garak's like, oh, absolutely. Funny thing, they never conclude that. 
Now, this is purely headcanon in my opinion, but I like to think that Garrick, who is an exceptionally observant individual, looked at Quark and was like, okay. And just, just, just dissected him in a second, like, yeah, he doesn't really want to die. So I'm going to go ahead and go along with this. And basically, in Garrick's own personal way, try to help convince Quark that he doesn't want to die. Now, that is mostly headcanon, but I think it fits the facts fairly well, because Garrick is not cruel, at least not anymore. He is actually, if anything, pragmatic, and killing Quark, even when hired to do so, is going to be a huge problem for him. I also don't think Garrick has any particular qualms against Quark. The two have interacted positively in the past more than once. And again, Garrick has proven to be exceptionally observant, and he can tell Quark doesn't want to die. So, okay, sure. I'll go along with it. And I like to think that every death he showed, we only see the one, but I like to think every death he did, he slanted it a little bit to make it look as unpleasant as possible. Just to kind of show Quark some of the reality, because Garrick knows what death is. Garrick has killed people. Quark does not know what death is. And I know that sounds like a strange thing, but in my experience, that's a true thing in real life, too. That some people understand death because they've either experienced it you know, in, in person or have actually caused it, and then other people don't. And there's just a gulf between those two things. For the record, I have never killed anyone, intentionally or otherwise, but I have also seen a lot of people die. And there's just something about it you can't really describe, right? There's just something uniquely horrible about it. Ugly. That's the word I like to use. It's like real violence. It's ugly. There's nothing wonderful. There's nothing romantic. There's nothing enjoyable about it. It's just wrong. And I like to think that Garrick was trying to show Quark this in, this, in his presentation, because Garrick knows exactly what death is like. So, <sighs> there we go. And then, of course, this leads to his final thing. You'll never see it coming. Basically, effectively pushing the fear of death into Quark. Because he never follows through on that, and we never hear from it again. Now, that could be just because the writers forgot about that plot thread, or it could be because Garrick never intended to kill Quark. Now... That, I, I like that interpretation, obviously, because I'm positing it. As ever, I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on that as well. But I think the other reason I like that is it's core to the central theme of the piece. See, right at the beginning, Rom told Quark, you've got people, you've got friends, plural. You have a community. And then Quark is the one who retaliated. I like to think that this is basically the first, or arguably second, showing of that community that, he, that Rom was mentioning. Because we see at the end of the episode, you know, Bashir shows up, Dax shows up, Cisco shows up, Odo shows up, and there's a crowd of people out there helping out. I'm sorry, this is a very heartwarming episode to me. Legitimately. It's nice to see these people showcase, for lack of a better way to put it, caring that Quark really does have friends, that he really is part of this community, and they really do respect him. For all the, the garbage, for all the snarking, when the chips are down, when he needs them, they are there for him. And I like that. I'm actually tearing up just a little bit, because it's, it's, just, it's such a nice gesture, isn't it? It's so nice to see that kind of thing. Quark himself is literally speechless. He starts to say something. It's like one vowel out. Like, ah, and he can't go any further because he's literally speechless at the gesture. But more than the gesture. Because it's proof. We all like to say in our heads, I'm not a failure. But it's a lot harder to say that when there's no proof. Right? I bet a lot of you know what I'm talking about. 
to say, I'm not that bad, I'm not that worthless, I'm not that ugly, I'm not that slow, I'm not that weak, I'm not that unsuccessful, right? And it's a lot easier to accept that as true when proof exists. For someone like Quark, who obviously thinks those same things just like the rest of us does, to see valid, demonstrable proof of the fact that he really does have friends and a community and people who care about him and people who are there for him when he needs them, to show that he was not a failure, but he was in fact successful, not financially, not as a true Ferengi, but as himself, as a people person. That's just got to be so rewarding, so gratifying. Of course he's speechless. I'm sorry, I kind of skipped over the little bit there. Uh, there's there's a, a couple other great scenes I just want to touch on really quickly. Um, the dream sequence, obvious, you know, in its own right. And uh, the idea of him talking to Gint and Brunt. And Gint being representative of his, you know, his desire to live. I have a quick theory about that. Because obviously Garrick is at least partially involved in that. But Quark at every step shows that he does not want to die. Now, duh. But what I mean by that is I feel like there's two sides to him not wanting to die. Side one is the obvious, survival instinct, fear, you know, duh. Side two is that he has a life. Let me rewind that for a second in case I'm not making it very clear. Not an existence, not a survival, but that he has a life, that he legitimately enjoys his life and that he wants to keep living it. That he feels that, well, he enjoys where he's at. That's just my take on it. But I like to think that that's at least half of why he does not want to die. Because he has something worth living for, in other words. I also just want to say really quick, I love the bit. Brunt is there, and he's just smarming because he's in control and he's on top. But the really funny, interesting thing about political power, and I've said this so many times, is that political power always bows to personal power. All you have to do is push someone far enough, or get someone who doesn't care enough, and political power evaporates instantly. And so Brunt, with all of his political power over Quark, his ability to strip him of the bar, strip him of his assets, and strip him of his license, all of that is something in his power. And so he's just completely on top of it, and then Quark says, oh, by the way, if you ever come back to my bar, you won't go out. And the way he says that is just brilliant. And you can see Brunt's face like, Oh, God, he means that, doesn't he? Okay, okay. <laughs> I very much enjoy half of this episode, and I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on it. I'll see you guys next time for an interesting outing. <laughs>